Hello, this is Peggy Joyce Ruth. Welcome to our podcast and hope you enjoy this teaching. If you would like to listen to more in-depth teachings, please sign up for our Psalm 91 family at PeggyJoyceRuth.org. Turn to Psalm 103. This is David's Psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Okay, David now is telling his soul what to do. He's reminding himself to bless God and not forget any of the benefits. Now these two demands that David required of himself are the two things that opened David up to receive the blessings of God. And these are the two things that will open every one of God's children up to receive kingdom living. Now that's why Psalm 103 is such an important scripture for the Christian. Now we're going to take these verses and we're going to look at them one at the time. I want you to look first of all at verse 1. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me bless his holy name. Okay, have you ever stopped to let it dawn on you that we have the capability on the inside of us to bless the God of the universe? Think about that. The God that created the entire universe wants us individually to stop and take the time to bless Him. Now that's just beyond my comprehension to think about the fact that we have that capability to be able to bless God. Now my first thought when I started meditating on that scripture was to wonder, well, Lord, how do we do that? How do we bless you? And then these were some of the things that started coming to me. Number one, when David first began to bless the Lord, it started out as an attitude down on the inside of David. It was an attitude before it was ever an action. So how do we develop that kind of an attitude? Okay, look at verse one. He said, bless the Lord, O my soul. So the first thing he did, he required that of himself. He was saying, so bless the Lord. And then he said, all that's within me, bless his holy name. You know, have you ever stopped to realize that everything that is within you is supposed to be blessing God? Now, anytime we find a phrase in the Word of God, sometimes we just kind of skip over it. But if we'll check it out, we'll find that every phrase in the Word of God holds a key for unlocking the unknown. Now, David required all that was within him to bless God. What is it that's within us? Okay, I want you to turn to Matthew 22, 37. Put a marker here. In Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus was answering a question, and actually he was quoting from the Old Testament. And in verse 37, he gave for this prophecy, and he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. Now he was quoting from Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 and there in Deuteronomy it also says and to love the Lord with all of your strength. We're to love the Lord with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. That's what's inside of you if you'll think about it. Our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Now Jesus was saying here exactly what David was saying over in Psalm 103. And that's how we bless God. Okay, let's break this down. How do we love the Lord with all of our heart? Okay, turn to Proverbs 4, verse 23. The writer of Proverbs says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from your heart flows the springs of life. He's saying watch over your heart, not half-heartedly, but watch over your heart with all diligence, because that's the place from which the streams of life flow. Okay, what does that mean? Whatever flows from your heart is what makes up the very essence of your life. Whatever it is that's flowing out of you, that's what your life literally consists of. So we need to ask ourselves, what is it that's flowing out of my heart? Okay, you're going to find that your attitudes, your devotions, your affections, these are the things that are coming forth from your heart. 
Now think about your attitude first. Have you ever known someone who would always do the right things, but they hated doing it? Okay, that's an attitude. That's an attitude of the heart. Someone who has a critical attitude most of the time. You know, they may feel very justified, but those constant critical attitudes are picturing the very essence of their life. So God says that we need to check out our attitudes. Let those attitudes begin to love God. You know, have you ever been at a praise service and it irritated you that the praise service lasted so long? Okay, we weren't blessing God with our heart. We weren't blessing Him with our attitude. God wants us to check out these attitudes. Then we're to love God with our devotions. See, the devotions, are they're coming forth from your heart. Okay, what are you devoted to? A lot of people are devoted to certain clubs. A lot of people are devoted to a particular political party, sometimes to a certain ministry. But God says, I want you to be devoted to me first. Now, we love God with our heart when we're devoted to him. What holds your affections? What is it that you like? Do you like to eat? Do you like to sleep late? Do you like to be entertained? Or do you like a certain individual? Maybe it's our work, but we're going to find out whatever it is that means a great deal to us. That's what we're devoted to. And the Lord says, I want you to love me more than the things that hold your affections. Lord, I love you more than I love to eat, or I love you more than having my own way. See, God is telling us right here in Proverbs that we're to literally guard those things that are coming up out of our heart. We're to guard our attitudes and guard our affections. Guard against the tug of the enemy because I'm going to tell you what, there's a big tug on all of these affections and all these attitudes that are coming forth out of our life. And this is our, the very essence of our being. Whatever's coming out of our heart is the essence of our being. And then he tells us that we're to love him with our soul. Now your will is a part of your soulish realm. Now we're to love God with our will. How do you do that? Well, your will is the decision-making part of your being. So the way that you love God with your soul, with your will, is simply by making decisions that exemplify that love. Now you'll find out that if you're loving God with your will, then you're going to find out that the decisions that you make are going to show forth that love. So ask yourself, do the decisions that I make indicate that I love God? Am I making decisions to go God's way or am I making decisions to go my own way? See, it's a decision, it's a choice, and he wants us to learn to love him with those choices because it's down in our soulish realm where we make those decisions. That's the deciding point. Now, let me give you this illustration. The wiring in a house has no power of its own. It simply brings the power from the powerhouse into the physical house. Now, our spirit is sort of like the wiring in a house. See, our spirit man has no power of its own, but it transmits power from the powerhouse of God into this physical being, into this physical house. But I want you to notice when the electricity comes through the wiring in a house, it doesn't just automatically flow on into the room. There's a switch, and if that switch is turned on, then the power is going to flow right on in and the lights will come on. But if that switch is turned off, then that electricity, the lights, will not flow on into the room. Now, there's power in the lines. You can cut the wire and be electrocuted. So there's power in the line, but it's not going to flow on into the room until the switch is turned on. Now, it's exactly the same way in our life. You know, we can have all kinds of power coming from God into our spirit, but if our soulish ram, which is our switch, if that's not turned on to the spirit of God, then we're going to find that it holds that power back. But if we'll stay in our soulish realm, in tune to God, turned on to the Spirit of God, 
turned on to our spirit that's transmitting that power, we're going to find out then that the power of God is going to be able to flood into our entire life. So it's in our soulish realm where the switch is, and that's what we have to keep turned on to God. Now, God is wanting us to keep that soulish realm so open and so in tune to God, and that's exactly how we love Him with our will. We love Him by making these decisions that exemplify that love. Now, your personality is simply a manifestation of your soul. See, your personality is made up of how you act, and it's made up of how the world sees you, how the world perceives you. And we love God by letting our personalities reflect Jesus. See, if you're a real bubbly, excited person, then let that excitement help you share Jesus. If you consider yourself to have a very quiet, reserved personality, then let your life and let that quiet strength and let that wisdom be a reflection of the Lord. How we act, how we respond is to be a reflection to the world that Jesus Christ is living on the inside of us. That's how our personality blesses and loves God. Now, Jesus said we're to love the Lord with all of our heart. We're to love him with all of our soul. And then he said we're to love him with all of our mind. Now, a lot of people don't think about needing to love God with their mind. How do you love God with your mind? Well, what do you spend your time thinking about? What are you absorbing into your subconscious? See, the things on which you dwell are the things that make up your intellect. And we're to love God by putting into our mind the things of God, dwelling and absorbing all the things of God into our mind. What do you read? You know, ask yourself, does the majority of my reading time come from the secular realm? Am I reading the Sports Illustrated and Ladies Home Journal and maybe Time Magazine or, or, say, the newspaper? Is that what I spend the majority of my time reading? See, there should be a lot of our reading time where we choose to love to read and meditate on the things of God. Whatever it is that you spend the majority of your time thinking on and reading, you're going to find that is exactly in proportion to how much you're loving God. Now, your emotions are a part of your soul, and some people are afraid to love God with their emotions because they've seen people who have gotten caught up in emotionalism. Now, God has given us these emotions, and He wants us to learn how to love Him with those emotions. So ask yourself, are my emotions joyful? How often do I, just on my own, praise God and sing love songs to the Lord? How often do you find yourself just being calm and peaceful and trusting God in the face of a problem? knowing that absolutely nothing is too difficult for God. Because many times we're finding ourselves being nervous and uptight and fearful and frustrated, and that means that our emotions are not loving God. See, God wants us to learn how to love Him with our emotions by being joyful, by being peaceful, and by learning how to really be excited about God. He wants us to be excited about Him. He wants us to love Him with our emotions. Now, we're a triune being. We're body, soul, and spirit. And the spirit of man is what is God conscious. That's what contacts God. And it's in our soulish realm, the mind, the will, and emotions that are self-conscious. And God intended it to be that way so that we can be in contact with ourself and who we are. And then we live in a physical body and it's that physical body, that earth suit, that is earth conscious. That's how we contact this world with our five senses. And we're to love God with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. And that strength represents this physical body. It represents our physical activities. And we're to love God with those physical activities. Now, one has only to survey the things that he does, how he spends his time, how he spends his money, where he goes. And that's going to tell him exactly how much he's loving God with his strength and with his body. 
Now taking care of our physical body is one way in which we love God with our strength. Because this body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And it's in Him we should be living and moving and having our being. That's how we love God with our physical strength. I want you to turn back to Psalm 103. After we bless the Lord with our soul, all that's within us, it says, bless His holy name. Part of blessing God is understanding that His name is holy. See, we need to guard ourselves against using religious-sounding words as bywords, where we say things like glory or hallelujah or oh Lord or oh my God, kind of like someone else would use a cuss word to preface their sentence. And many times we're guilty of that where we use the name of Jesus, but it just sort of becomes a byword and it loses its meaning because it becomes just a cliche. We need to break those habits. When we bless His holy name, it needs to mean something down on the inside of us. See, God wants us to develop an attitude of humility and reverence where when His name comes out of our mouth, it means something that's coming from the depths of our being. When that happens, then it's not going to be repetitious bywords. These are going to be words that come out of us that are heartfelt. And it'll be because we're blessing His holy name. We're recognizing that His name is holy. And it'll be a verbal expression of literally what's going on down on the inside of us. And when we begin to love the Lord like Jesus told us to do, with our heart, in other words, with all of our attitudes, with all of our affections, with all of our devotions, when we begin to love the Lord with our soulish realm, with our emotions, our feelings, our will, all of our decision-making, when we begin to love the Lord with our mind, with our thought life, and when we begin to love the Lord with all of our strength, all of our activities and our body, and when we learn to reverence His name as holy, it's going to manifest and it's going to show up in every single thing that we do. Literally, a team of horses is not going to be able to hold back what begins to come forth out of our innermost being then you're going to find yourself beginning to really desire to tell Him how much you love Him. It's going to have moved then from an attitude into being an action. And it's going to be the most natural thing in the world for us to find ourselves when we're alone, just telling the Lord how much we love Him and how much we want to be with Him. You'll find yourself wanting to be obedient. There won't be any rebellion in your heart. See, those are the two actions that will be telltale signs that you have begun to love the Lord with your heart, soul, mind, and strength when you become into that genuine praise and when you come into obedience. You'll find those two things will begin to start manifesting all the time, genuine praise and obedience. Now, I'm a firm believer in the fact that obedience would never have to be taught if we had a love walk established. The more we come into a love walk, the more we're going to just find ourselves being obedient. It's a natural response to love. Anytime we're loving someone, we're going to be obedient. That's why Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. And you see that in the physical realm. I'm more in love with my husband today than I was in 1960 when we got married. But you know what I've noticed? I've noticed that I want to be obedient to him more than I wanted to be obedient to him then. And that's what happens when we're in love with the Lord. We're going to find out that the more we love Him, the more we want to obey Him, the more we want to please Him. Okay, look at verse 2. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. Okay, what benefits is He talking about? He's talking about the benefits of the covenant. I used to read that and I used to think, you know, why did David have to remind himself not to forget the benefits? I might forget some point of obedience, but I'm certainly not going to forget a benefit. If it's a benefit, I'm going to remember that. 
We enjoy the benefits. And it seems really strange for David to remind his soul not to forget the benefits. But I want you to do a little experiment now. Don't look down at your Bible. I want you to look up at me. David was telling us not to forget the benefits. Now, without looking at your Bible, how many of those benefits can you name? Can you name all six of them? Can you name two of them? Okay, the point I'm trying to make is we think we're never going to forget the benefits, but it's a lot easier than you think. See, if we don't keep these benefits right before our eyes, if we don't remind us to remember the benefits, we do forget. So be honest with yourself. How many of those benefits did you know without having to look? How many had you remembered? See, we've read these scriptures over and over. Probably everybody in this room has read Psalm 103 many, many times. And yet most of the time, we don't remember those benefits. We can't even quote them back. I want us to see that as magnificent as these benefits are, unless we do exactly what David told us to do, we're going to forget those benefits. Now look at verse 3. The benefits are... He pardons all your iniquities. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit, from destruction. He crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. He satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Now, as wonderful as those benefits are, you'd think that every day, every hour, we'd be down on our knees and we'd be thanking God for how wonderful these blessings are. And we should be doing that. But that's exactly why we need to follow David's example and remind ourselves every day to forget not the benefits. Now, there are literally whole denominations who have forgotten the benefits. Many of them have forgotten them to the point that they even deny that they exist. And some of them would go so far as to try to prove that the benefits don't exist. Now, in my wildest imagination, I would never be able to understand why anyone would try to prove that the benefits don't exist. That's kind of like shooting yourself in the foot. <laughs> God has blessed us, and so many times people are fighting not to receive what God has done. Now, if we forget the benefits, we're never going to have the privilege of enjoying them. Now, this is a very silly illustration, but I just want you to hear the principle that's involved. Last year, I went to the grocery store, and I noticed a big cluster of grapes, and they looked so good. Now, grapes were not in season, and so they were pretty high, but they looked so good, I decided that I'd go ahead and buy them and take them home as a treat. Now, I put them in the refrigerator, and we were busy for the next few days, and by that time, I had forgotten all about those grapes. In fact, one night after dinner, Jack said, you know, I wish I just had something sweet, and I still didn't remember those grapes. Well, days went by, and it was probably a week and a half or two weeks, and I finally saw this sack back in the back of the refrigerator and looked in it, and there were those grapes. But by this time now, they're all shriveled up and they're ruined. Now, I had those grapes in my possession, but I lost the benefit of them simply because I forgot about them. I forgot they were there. Now, I know that's a silly illustration, but I want you to hear the principle. See, people who forget the benefits of God will very often lose those benefits. Forgetting is a way of losing. Now, by the same token, remembering the benefits, focusing in on them, thinking about them, and thanking God for them is a way of receiving them, appropriating them in our life. That's what God's wanting us to do, is come to a place where we begin to appropriate those benefits. Now, I've noticed that many times in large companies, what they'll do, they'll have an employee meeting, and it's for the sole purpose of educating the employees on the benefits that have been made available and how to appropriate those benefits. It might be sick leave, it might be hospitalization or a dental plan or vacation or whatever. But they'll have this meeting to educate the employees. 
Well, now we have joined the family of God. We've joined the army of God. And God too has a benefit plan. And he wants to instruct us in the benefits. I want us just to look at this as an instruction in the benefits of God. Look at verse 3. He said, first of all, he pardons all of your iniquities. Now there's an understood, unspoken condition to this first benefit. The understood, unspoken condition is genuine repentance. Now apart from the cleansing blood of Jesus, there is no forgiveness of sin. True, genuine repentance is the prerequisite for receiving this first benefit. Now, if we're blessing God with our whole being, like we talked about earlier, true repentance is just going to be almost an automatic response to God. See, a lifestyle of blessing God is going to put an attitude inside of our heart, just exactly like David had when he wrote Psalm 51. Because he was saying, Lord, wash me from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He said, if you'll cleanse me and purify me, I'll be clean. He said, wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Well, the Lord washes us by the blood of the Lamb. And David went on to say, create within me a clean heart. And the more we get to know God, the more we're going to cry out for a clean heart. David was crying out to God and he said, don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. He said, restore the joy of my salvation. See, once we sin, the joy is gone. And it may be no more sin than just worry, but... We can be worrying and get in that kind of sin and every bit of our joy will be gone. And that's what David was crying out. He was crying out for the joy to be restored. And the more we come into loving God with our heart and soul and mind and strength, the more we're going to respond to God in this true kind of repentance. Now when Psalm 51 literally becomes the attitude of our heart, then God says, I pardon all of your iniquities. See, it doesn't matter how big the sin might be. When we turn to God, He says, I'll pardon all those iniquities. Now that's what He meant down in verse 12 when He said, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far I'm going to remove your transgressions from you. The east and west never meet. Now Corey ten Boom is famous for quoting Micah 7 verse 19. That scripture says that God takes our sins and puts them in the depths of the sea. And Corey goes on to say, God puts our sins in the depth of the sea and then he puts up a no fishing sign. I like that. <laughs> but you know what we do? We go fishing and we try to haul those sins up from time to time. And we put them back on ourselves. See, God's wanting us to allow him to pardon our iniquities. He wants us to stop that sin cycle. Later look up Jeremiah 5 verse 25. And mark it in your Bible. It says, your sins have withheld good from you. See, that's why God wants us to repent. That's why He wants us to be pardoned. Because it's our sins, it's those iniquities that are holding back the good things that God has for us. Now in Isaiah 53 verse 5 in the Amplified, it foretells that the Messiah was going to die. And that He was going to take the sin, the guilt, and the consequences. See, God says that He will pardon us Later, look up that word pardon in Webster's Dictionary. You'll be interested in what it has to say. It says that it releases a person from punishment when they've been pardoned. It cancels out the penalty when they're pardoned. And it excuses the debt. Now, that's what God does. He releases us from the punishment. He cancels the penalty. And He excuses us from the debt when it's under the blood. That's what God does for us when He pardons our iniquity. And that's exactly what He's expecting from us when we forgive other people, when He requires us to forgive. Now, that's some kind of benefit that God's provided. Now, this benefit is made possible not because God turned His back and pretended that He didn't see the sin. 
It's made possible because Jesus came and he fulfilled the law and he took the curse. Okay, the number two benefit is the last part of verse three. It says he heals all of your diseases except the ones that have progressed to the point that they've become terminal. Is that what it says? <laughs> okay. Unfortunately, many times that's how we read it though. See, we put degrees not only on sin, but we put degrees on sickness. Now, I never will forget an incident that happened several years ago. Angela and her friend were praying for this little baby, and they didn't hear exactly what was wrong with the baby. They just heard that she had some pain in her head. So they prayed with this young mother for the child, and the next week, the mother was so excited, she said, oh, my baby's healed, my baby's healed, and she was so elated she could hardly talk. Well, Angela couldn't understand why she was that excited over a headache being gone. Well, come to find out, what they hadn't heard the week before is that the pain was in that baby's head because the baby had a brain tumor. And the pain had left, so they took the baby back to the doctor and the brain tumor was gone. They did a brain scan and the, and the tumor was gone. Well, Angela and her friend nearly fainted when they found out it was a brain tumor instead of a headache. And I said, well, how would you have prayed differently if you'd known that? And she said, I don't know, but I would have done something differently if I'd have known it was a tumor. See, we mortals are so funny because we do put degrees on sickness. Now, God didn't say that I'll heal your diseases if they haven't progressed too far. He said, I'll heal all of your diseases. Now, Deuteronomy 28, verse 61 says, Every sickness and every disease, even the ones that are not listed out in this book, are all a part of the curse. And in Galatians 3, verse 13, it says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He redeemed us from everything that's listed in Deuteronomy 28, verse 15 to the end of the chapter, if we'll appropriate it. Now, he paid a high price to do that. Isaiah 52, verse 14 says that his appearance was marred more than any man when he took all of this on his body on the cross. See, when sin came into the world, death came in, and everything leading up to death, including sickness. Now, just because you're sick doesn't necessarily mean that you're in sin, but your sickness is a result of the fact that there's sin out there in the world. But the good news is that the same God that said, I will pardon all of your iniquities, also said, I'll forgive all of your diseases. Isn't God good? These are the benefits that God's given us. You know, I just love that song, Isn't He Wonderful? Isn't Jesus my Lord wonderful? I just love that song. We need to constantly remind ourselves how good and how awesome and how wonderful God is. Now, the very first step toward receiving this second benefit is to come to a place where we believe in God's willingness as well as His ability, where we believe that He's willing to heal. We need to settle the issue of willingness and never doubt it again. Just put every bit of the doubt out of our mind. Okay, the number three benefit is in verse 4. He redeems your life from the pit. Now, pit also means destruction. Now, the most important redemption from destruction that you'll ever receive is your redemption from hell. But we've got a lot of years right here on this earth, so a part of that redemption from destruction takes in being redeemed from the destruction that comes against us in this world. Now, that's why Psalm 91 verse 6 says, You'll not be afraid of destruction because it will not even come near you if we'll dwell in the shelter of the Most High and abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Now, we need to not forget this benefit. We need to confess this regularly. I have been redeemed from destruction. We need to confess that until it becomes a part of us, until we believe it. 
See, it's hard sometimes when Satan's fiery darts are coming all around us. It's hard for us to confess this benefit and really believe it. But God says that one of the benefits is that we're redeemed from destruction. Confess that until you believe it. Confess it until it literally becomes a part of you. I looked up this word destruction in Webster's, and it said the state of being destroyed. Destruction is the state of being destroyed. And all of a sudden, I saw something that I'd never seen before in this benefit. See, many times we wait a long time before we apply this number three benefit until the destruction is obvious. But see, destruction starts a long time before it becomes obvious to the world. If you've ever seen a house that's burned to the ground or maybe a house that has been blown away in a tornado, it's easy to see that as destruction. But have you ever been inside of a house that just looked beautiful and the paint was new and there were no cracks in the wall and you just thought, oh, this is a brand new house, but you went under the house and you found out that termites had eaten the foundation away? Okay, see, that house was in the state of being destroyed, but it was hard to detect it because it wasn't showing. It hadn't become obvious yet. See, we recognize a life that's destroyed by cancer as destruction. We recognize someone that's totally dependent upon drugs and alcohol, and we see that as destruction. But we often overlook the state of being destroyed. So we don't take advantage of this third benefit when it could eliminate the problem and take care of it before it progressed that far. See, the first time that a husband and wife decides to sleep in separate bedrooms simply because they've had a fight, and they've allowed the sun to go down on their anger without making an amends. See, that marriage has just entered into the state of becoming destroyed. The first time that a teenager decides to willfully disobey their parents and get in rebellion, see, that child has just entered into a state of being destroyed. The early stages of hurtful, ugly exchanges of words between mates, between parents and children, where no amends have been made, a relationship has just entered into the state of being destroyed. Those first years where someone begins to make unwise choices in their buying habits, and they begin to accumulate debt a little bit at a time and a little bit at a time. See, their financial situation has just entered into the state of being destroyed. Now, any one of those situations, if they're left alone apart from God, it will soon become very obvious. But see, God wants us to see that we don't have to let it progress. This benefit doesn't have to be held back and use it after the destruction has already had its toe. God is saying, begin to apply this benefit and begin to confess it over these situations that are in the process of being destroyed. And he said, if you'll begin to confess that, he said, I'll give you the wisdom. And he said, I'll redeem you from that state of destruction. I'll redeem you. I'll redeem your life, and I'll redeem everything that is involved in your life, your marriage, your children, your relationships, your finances, whatever. God says, I'll redeem anything that's yours, anything that's in the process of being destroyed. He said, if you'll trust me and you'll begin to allow me to work in that situation, I will redeem you from destruction. Now, if we believe that any situation is beyond repair, if we believe that it's impossible at this point to have it redeemed, then we have forgotten the number three benefit. Okay, number four, look at the last part of verse four. It says, he crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Now, a crown denotes royalty. A crown encircles the head and it covers the head. So God is saying, I'm going to circle and surround you and I'm going to cover you with my royalty. When we see a person in need, we might pick them up and dust them off and maybe put a little money in their pocket and maybe help them get a job. But what does God do when he sees us in need? 
And he saw us in need before we were ever born. He picks us up. He dusts us off. He adopts us as his own child. He gives us his name. He puts his royal blood in our veins. And then he even loves us enough to die for us. See, he crowns us literally with his loving kindness and his tender mercies. Now, there's no way to put a value on a benefit like that. You know, there's a well-known evangelist and songwriter that made this statement. He said, God is not some insensitive, invisible machine out there in the universe. He said, God has emotions, and when he sees one hand that's reaching up in an attempt to say, God, I need you and I want you, he said, the very heart of God is moved. And he said, at that point, God will begin immediately to get that person in right position to receive his loving kindness and his tender mercies. And that's what he's wanting to do. He's wanting to lavish his loving kindness on us. He wants us to put ourselves in a position to be able to receive. Now, what if we served a God who crowned us with harshness instead of tenderness? Think about that. What if we served a God who crowned us with criticism instead of tenderness, instead of kindness? What if we just served a God that crowned us with what we deserved? Think about that. We serve a God that wants to crown us with loving kindness and tender mercies. Now look on down in the last part of verse 10. It says, we are not rewarded according to our iniquities. Praise God we're not rewarded according to our iniquities. We deserve punishment, but he doesn't crown us with what we deserve. He crowns us with his loving kindness. Okay, look at benefits number five and six in verse five. It says, he satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. He satisfies you with good things. Now, one of the reasons that he satisfies us with good things is so that our youth can be renewed. These are separate benefits, but they definitely work together because a part of having your youth renewed, a part of your staying young, is being satisfied. And only good things will ultimately satisfy. Now, the Bible tells us that sin brings pleasure for a season, and it does. But you'll never find where it says that sin brings satisfaction. It doesn't. Sin never satisfied. In fact, it's just the opposite. Every time a person sins, the next time they've got to do a little bigger and a little better to get the same thrill. So sin doesn't satisfy. The good things of God are the only things that ultimately satisfy. Now, James 1.17 tells us that every good gift comes down from God. He says there's no variation. There's no shifting shadows. God is the only one that gives good gifts. You can't receive a good gift from any other source other than God. Now, this is important. God gives us a priority system. And that priority system is God first, and then family second, and then outreach third. Now, it can begin by being a good gift, and yet if we get it outside of God's priority system, it can become a bad gift. Therefore, it's not going to satisfy. But this is the exciting part. Anytime that we give Jesus, who is the number one good thing, anytime we give Jesus the first priority in our life, then something very supernatural takes place because there's a spiritual principle involved. And we find that all the other good things began to come upon us and overtake us. Now that's a principle in Matthew 6, verse 33. It says that as we seek Jesus, make him the number one priority in our life, then immediately it says all the other things come upon us. All these other things are added. See, God satisfies us with all good things when we have things in right priority. Now, let me give you a good way to appropriate this benefit. In your quiet time when you're with the Lord, just begin naming back to God all the good things that he's done for you. I like that old song, count your blessings, name them one by one. 
and it will surprise you what the Lord's done. This is one of my favorite songs because I found that every time I start naming back the good things that God has done, and as I name them back in thanksgiving, all of a sudden God begins to reveal more and more of His goodness more and more of the good things that he has in store. It's just like it just begins to open more doors and more doors and we begin to see more and more of his goodness. Now sometimes we're so busy giving ourselves good things without waiting on God that we're lavishing it on ourselves, and we find out that doesn't satisfy. Because see, it's not good if God doesn't give it. When I give myself good things and I just lavish that on myself rather than waiting on God, I found out that about all it creates is debt and flesh. <laughs> That's what it brings. It doesn't bring satisfaction. God's joy comes from giving good things to His children, but He knows exactly when and how these things are to come so that they don't hinder our spiritual growth. Now, He satisfies us with good things so that our youth is renewed as eagles. Okay, now what the world calls good is never going to renew our youth. The things that the world gives to us it just brings age, you know. We're going to find that sin ages us. But God satisfies us with good things so that the number six benefit comes so that our youth is renewed. Do you realize that very few people take this number six benefit seriously? Very few people. See, your youth can literally be renewed as an eagle. Don't forget that benefit. That's why David said, don't forget this benefit. Now, we're going to have to focus in on this benefit in order to be able to receive it. It's not God's will for His people to grow old the way that the world grows old. That's just not God's will. Now, I'm not saying the aging process stops. Don't hear a weird doctrine. But I am saying that the sights that you so often see in the hospitals and so often see in the rest homes around the country are not God's will. A change is going to come in a person's physical appearance and it's going to come in their physical body. But old age should not be a time of physical failure where a person gets bitter and angry and where they're miserable. It shouldn't be a time of disappointment and despair and sickness. See, a person shouldn't get old and disillusioned. That shouldn't happen. Deuteronomy 34 verse 7 says that Moses lived to be 120. And at 120 he had a sound body. He was still leading the people. His mind was sound. He still had all of his energy. He was able to climb up to the top of the mountain, and his eyes had not become dim. See, when it's time for us to go home to be with the Lord, God intends for us to go home well. You know, we don't have to go home sick. A part of our benefit is that He renews our youth as eagles. So we don't have to be sick to die. Now there's examples of that all through the Word of God as well as modern day examples where people lived out their life, they were satisfied in their old age, and they were ready to go home, so they simply just released their spirit to the Lord. Now if we expect disaster, if we expect bad things to happen, if we're expecting the gradual loss of memory and having to have one repair after another done to our body to keep us going, then more than likely that's exactly what we're going to have if that's what we're expecting. See, if we expect all the things that the world expects, we think that's just inevitable, then that means we have forgotten this number six benefit. But when we focus in on the benefits, a tremendous power is released in our life. See, don't wait until you're old to start believing that your youth is renewed. Start praying and claiming the benefits while you're young. Now, all these benefits come out of two things. Number one, they come out of remembering them. And number two, they come out of a right relationship with the Father, just exactly like we talked about it first. 
Now, no one can walk in these six benefits apart from a vital union with the Father. It takes that vital love relationship and loving Him truly with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength and treating His name as holy. And as we come into that and remember the benefits, all of a sudden we begin to walk in them. In closing, I want to point out one interesting thing. Psalm 103, verse 1 through 5, what we've just looked at, is really a commentary now for Hebrews 11, verse 6. We read that scripture all the time. It's impossible to please God without faith. The one who pleases God must believe that He is, and He is the rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. And we read that sometime and we say, well, Lord, how do I do that? <laughs> you know, how do I have faith and believe you are and you are the rewarder? Well, Psalm 103, 1 through 5 tells us how to do it. See, loving God with your body, soul, and spirit, loving Him with your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength is the way to put in action the believing that He is. See, when we truly believe that God is, that He is who He says He is, then we are going to love Him with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. And then verses 3 through 5, forgetting not the benefits, is the way that we believe He is the rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. And as we forget not the benefits, that's we're diligently seeking Him, seeking to please Him, seeking after the kingdom. And then He says all of these things will be added. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You, Lord, for the benefits. Lord, I thank You that it's important to You after You've provided these benefits. It's important to You that we receive them. Just exactly like we as physical parents want our children to receive good things from us. Lord, I thank you that you desire for us to receive the good things from you. Lord, I just want to thank you for each one of these benefits. I want to thank you, Lord, that you do forgive our iniquities and that you do heal our diseases. Father, I thank you that you do redeem us from destruction. That you crown us, Lord, with loving kindness and with compassion. That you satisfy us with all good things and you truly do restore our youth, Lord. Thank you for that. Our Lord, we just want to bless you. We want, to, we want all that's within us, our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength to bless you and praise your holy name. That is the desire of our heart. Lord, we want to love what we want to know you better. Lord, I know that every single person that's here, Lord, I know that their heart cry is to know you better. And I'm asking, Lord, tonight that you will grant this desire of our heart that will come into a new dimension with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Please share this teaching with anyone you think it would minister to. If you would like to listen to more in-depth teachings, please sign up for our Psalm 91 family at PeggyJoyceRuth.org.